Uh, shall we uh, get to it? Let's get to it. What is this travesty? Uh, this travesty is a little podcast called Project A+, uh, which used to be something different and probably won't be like this for too much longer, one hopes. But at the moment, uh, it used to be that we tackled some projects on the show, which were different directors or national cinemas. And we did a couple of segments, one of which has become, you know, engorged. I mean, not really engorged. Uh, because it's not like, you know, you've, you or I have particularly watched more films to compensate for the lack of, uh, main discussion, I think. No. But, uh, so, uh, there's a feature called bonus features where we just list off the other films that we watched this week. And, uh, during the quarantine, you know, and the future's uncertain, uh, we figured that we would scale back the podcast a little bit and maybe we'll rewatch it in some other format in the future. But at the moment, we're just going to stick to the bonus features uh, and by the way, my name is Hunter, and your name is Hugh, if that's, if I'm not mistaken. You're not mistaken. Um, I, I regret to inform you that another listener has joined the ranks of Project A Plus listeners. So now there are two, or there were two for a brief moment. And I didn't, I didn't want this to happen. This was just a co-worker. <laughs> oh, no. And it got to the point where, like, we both leave at the same time and like we walk in the same direction and then he goes onto the train station and I go around the corner to my house, right? Yeah. So he's always asking like, so what are you going to do for the rest of the day? I mean, doesn't this guy know that there's a fucking quarantine going on? <laughs> what, what, there's only a limited number of things you can do. I know, I was, run, I was running low on, on conversation. So I was like, well, maybe this will lead to more interesting discussion about other stuff. But I said I was like editing or recording the podcast. I can't remember what I said. Might have been recording. And usually my my qualifiers regarding the quality of the podcast will be enough to sort of uh, stem any further interest. <laughs> that's that's why you don't qualify it at all. But but anyway, he 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 eventually he did ask. He's like, "What's the name of it?" And I just said it quickly, and I didn't explain that you have to search it a particular way or you won't find it. <laughs> so I wasn't expecting him to find it. But he, but he did found it. He did. He did find it. Yeah. And, and how many uh, episodes did he listen to? And it sounds like that. Not that I think he listened to very much of it, but for whatever reason, he decided to go from the start. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, he's got to you know get all the runny bits and things, <laughs> you know. And uh, the only observation he made, I was like, when he told me, I was like, oh, I'm so sorry, <laughs> why'd you do that? <laughs> but the only observation he made was like, oh, the sound quality gets better over time. I'm like, yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> it do- does it? <laughs> it does because I didn't know, not necessarily in terms of our microphones, because we're using the same equipment. Mm. But in terms of the way I was mixing it, the early episodes, like, I didn't know the right setting to make all the, all the levels loud enough compared to other podcasts. So it's really soft and the dynamics are all over the place. Fair enough. Now it's quite harsh and condensed, but at least it's more audible. So how have you been? Uh, I've been fine. Been kind of busy recently. Just been doing a lot of stuff. Socializing? Yeah, kind of, kind of a little bit too much. Mm. 
Because you visited some in-laws, did you not? Yeah, on, on Friday. I mean, de facto in-laws. No. <laughs> not de facto. Why? Are you married? No. Then it's de facto. No, it's not. It is. They're not in-laws because we're not married. I'm not going to get married, so... Yeah, that's what de facto means. No, de facto means for all purposes, but not in the name itself, right? Yeah. These are not my in-laws. Wow. This is the... <laughs> The father and stepmother of my girlfriend. Yeah, but like the effect is the same. Not really. That's the de facto part. Like, for all intents and purposes, they're your in laws. I disagree. Anyway, we're going to pop the question. <laughs> no. You're liking these uncertain types? <laughs> no. A global pandemic as a way of, you know. No. Don't believe in marriage. Realize don't, what, believe in, uh, don't believe in having children. What's, what's really important? I already, I already clarified my uh, relationship. Did you really? Yeah. No, I already cleared. Uh, sorry, I already clarified my position towards relationships. So towards relationships in general, you like yeah. no marriage, no kids. Yeah, that's that's. I've said that before. I'll say it again. All right, we'll, we'll just cut all that, right? Yeah. Should we introduce the podcast again? <laughs> hey guys, this is Project A Plus, <laughs> bonus features edition. Uh, my name is Hunter, your name is Hugh. Uh, Hugh, I believe you had a story you wanted to tell, or was that something that you don't want to tell on the podcast? Well, I mean, calling it a story oversells it somewhat, but I will tell you something that happened to me. Mm, please. Um, so we've been, we've been chatting on this podcast about uh, our welfare payments in the current climate. Uh, you lost your job entirely. I had mine reduced to a fraction of its former self, in that I'm um, down to like 10 hours instead of 40 and uh, recently I've been having to liaise with the welfare department, which in Australia is called somewhat ominously Services Australia, formerly known as Centrelink. And I've been calling them up because I've had some issues uh, with their online service and uh, when there's no other way of resolving a particular matter, I'm forced onto the phone. Um, so there was an error when I was trying to report my income and it said you have to contact the call centre so I called up. The wait time is at least half an hour at the best of times. Mm. Finally, I got through, uh, managed to, to get a hold of someone who was able to resolve the issue. And in passing, I was discussing how I was reporting my income and how it was a little tricky sometimes for the retrospective dates because the reporting cycle that was dictated by the welfare agency does not align to my pay cycle, right? Mm. And then the guy said, oh, we can fix that. We can change it so it does align with your cycle. It makes it easy to report. And I was like, oh, all right, go for it, all right? So the way they had it was that you would report every Friday on a fortnightly basis. Now, my pay period runs from Thursday to Wednesday, and we get paid on a Thursday. So I was like, well, let's change it to Wednesday because that'll be the last day of that cycle. So when I get at least one of my pay slips, I can work out half of my hours pretty easily and the rest of them will have to be a little bit more manual about mm -hmm. so anyway he does whatever he needs to do on the system and the way that it worked out is that there was like this intermediary period of only like four or five days it ran from like saturday to wednesday or saturday to tuesday or whatever uh -huh. so that then the fortnightly cycle would kick back into place so it was the only way it really works out right and then i received both the payment I would have received for the fortnight that had already elapsed that ends on Friday 
and that I received an additional payment for this mini period that fixes up the, the two cycles, right? You're getting fucking rich. But it was like basically close to the same amount. So I, you know, I was like, well, if this is an overpayment, which it seems to be, I better get on top of it now rather than have to repay it back later when they f- pick up the error. So I called them again. I was like, I'm pretty sure I've been overpaid. This seems like way too much for like a, a five day period. Mm-hmm. Um, they weren't like the person I was speaking to. Obviously, they don't have much personal investment in Services Australia. So they, they weren't that keen to resolve the issue. They were just like, yeah, it looks, it looks fine. I was like, are you sure? It doesn't seem right to me, right? Mm. But it turned out to be okay because it's this coronavirus supplement payment of $550 a fortnight on top of the normal amount that is based on the actual income you receive and adjusted accordingly, uh, also in accordance with your assets and such. So the, the Services Australia part of it, the, the previous welfare scheme, that was adjusted and calculated correctly for that five-day period. But the coronavirus bonus payment does not care about such things, and it is paid automatically regardless in every single reporting period. Gotcha. So it turned out to have been a stroke of good luck that I adjusted my reporting periods because that's free money as far as I'm concerned. Nice. Now you can uh, buy me some, uh, you know, Jackie Chan Blu-rays like me. Yeah. Goodbye, uh, that new... Um Operation Condor Blu-ray that's coming out. I did splurge on a billion ingredients for my uh, masculine curry that I cooked over the weekend. Uh-huh. It does add up, getting all those bits and pieces, especially buying all these like masses of coriander roots, or masses of coriander just for the roots, rather. Mm. Forces me to make pesto all the time. Pesto's good, though. Yeah, pesto's good. Oh, did I tell you I started reading Jackie Chan's autobiography? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Well, I, always, I think I always started doing it yesterday, so I don't think I did, actually. Maybe you didn't. Um, but uh, he's written two uh, memoirs. Um, the first one just being, I think, just Jackie Chan, My Wife. And then I'm reading the second one, uh, which is called Jackie Chan, Never Grow Up. Or just Never Grow Up. And uh, it's, uh, it's pretty entertaining. <laughs> he talks a lot about how his father beat him, but... Doesn't seem too shaken up about it, so you know the the introduction to the book is is hilarious though because they talk about him when he or he like recounts this um or him and his ghost water writer I should uh I should uh you know uh, hey be clear <laughs> no, there's another credited writer on the book so I'm not even like oh, okay. it's not even imputing the uh, well then it's not a ghost it's, it's not a ghost writer yeah it's just a uh, I don't even know what the word is then. Co-writer. Co-writer, yeah. Co-author. Yeah. Um, which is to say, probably performed many of the same duties as the ghostwriter. But uh, the opening chapter is him, is, or the uh, introduction is him, like, uh, recounting the, when he got the, uh, you know, honorary Academy Award, right? Hmm. <laughs> There's something just kind of pathetic about how many times he's like, I can't believe I won this award. It's like, you didn't win an award. You just got <laughs> honored by the... By the like there's, it's not a competition. <laughs> I feel like the uh, honorary Academy Awards are, like, you know, pretty lax, too. Like, the game went to, like, David Lynch, you know? It's like... <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but uh, the thing I like most about it is... <laughs> there's this great... <laughs> anecdote where he talks about going to Sylvester Stallone's mansion 
and fondly his Oscar because he wanted it so bad. <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, Stallone did win an Oscar for uh, for Rocky. I forgot about that. Mm-hmm. I just, I just, thinking, I just felt like, um, I mean, because you know, I feel like Jackie Chan like is probably a bigger star than I mean, maybe not. I don't know than like Arnold or, or Sylvester Stallone, but he seems so like uh, I don't know, like starstruck by them almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's funny that he 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 calls them his friends too, which I just <laughs> just imagine like Jackie Chan and <laughs> Sylvester Stallone hanging out. <clears throat> I believe it would go a little something like this. <laughs> Well, he did face off against Arnold Schwarzenegger in a recent high point in their, both of their careers. <laughs> and vie to Journey to the West. Mm. I should watch that, don't you think? I mean, obviously it's going to be terrible, but I just like the, I just love the idea of an English language Chinese-Russian co-production. Like, who is it for? <laughs> Maybe it's for us. And Rucker Howard is also in it. Wow. Is that his last screen performance? Um, I will check. I don't think so because it shot in like 2015 or something like that. It's <laughs> a good sign. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's. Uh, it doesn't seem like it's available here, but I'm sure I could find some way to watch it. You know, Rucker Howard's last film, according to Wikipedia, was he still has films that have yet to come out. So right, okay. Uh, um. All right. Uh. So you told your. I guess that was a story. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta be honest, it's kind of hard for me to maintain my attention during it. It's a little, you know, it's one of those uh, listeners. going in and out of... Uh... I'm just entertaining you. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, so shall we jump in it uh, to, into our bonus features? Yes, please. Bonus features, bonus, bonus features, bonus features, bonus, bonus features. All right, uh, Hugh, did you did you watch any movies this week? Kind of a light week for me, so maybe you'll uh, catch up to me. Did I watch any movies? <laughs> uh, you better have, or you're going to have to start fucking talking about that TV you've been watching. <laughs> did you <laughs> watch any? Bunker. How many movies did you watch? I watched three movies. Three movies? Let's see yeah. if I can match or beat or <laughs> neither. I bet, okay, can I, can I predict how many movies you watched? All right, guess. I bet you, I bet you watched one movie. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you? Why would you say such a thing? What do you think I am? <laughs> I think you're a lazy piece of shit. <laughs> you will have to admit that if the answer is indeed one, <laughs> that's better than zero, right? That gets me out of talking about TV. <laughs> no, no, you start talking about TV if it's one. What if I have like tons of tons of stuff to say about this one film? What it should be is that every week it's a competition and the loser has to talk about the TV shows they've been watching. <laughs> Alright, well, how many movies did you watch? Uh, I'm going to say zero. I bet uh, you haven't watched any, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just count. This might take, this might take a moment. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, I watched seven films. Really? Yeah. That's funny. 
But it's good for me because I I'd kind of rather talk about the uh, anime TV series if I'm watching it anyway. So this time, uh, my entries will sandwich yours. Mm. This is the first time this has happened in, in a long time. You shall be the underwhelming filling of this particular construction. So maybe I'll start with three, then you do three, and then I bring it home with my final four. How's that sound? Or we could just volley back and forth. No, let's, let's do uh, the first one. Uh, so the first film I watched, you ready for this? Mm-hmm. The first film I watched this week was a film from 1941 titled You'll Never Get Rich. I never heard of it. It is a Fred Astaire picture and the first of two pictures that he made post his partnership with Ginger Rogers with Rita Hayworth, Mrs. Orson Welles herself. <laughs> well, one of the Mrs. Orson Welles's. Yes. Uh, so this was directed by Sidney Landfield, mm. and uh, it is very much in the mode of the other Fred Astaire films from the earlier Astaire and Rogers era, but I will say that it falls short of at least the better of those pictures. So Rita Hayworth is very good, but is given little to do outside the couple of dance numbers that she's involved in. Although I, it's worth saying that she does more than match Astaire in those numbers. So it's not like a two-hander in the same way that the best Astaire and Rogers pictures were. Mm-hmm. And uh, especially in lieu of a glaring and uh, somewhat unsettling age difference between Astaire and Hayworth, I think he needed a stronger sparring partner, not just a mm. love interest that surfaces occasionally in the narrative. It has, a, it has a similar quality to, to many of the Astaire and Rogers pictures in that there's a certain theatrical quietness and even a stiltedness about the staging at times, especially the, the bits in between the dance numbers. But to its credit, there is something quintessentially American about Astaire and Hayworth tap dancing atop an enormous prop tank festooned with chorus girls and GIs. It's a, it's a sort of goofy story involving light farcical elements as you might expect the connection between stare and hayworth outside of the dancing scene is pretty featherweight but yeah it's cole porter it's fred astaire it's rita hayworth you can't exactly have a terrible time with this film and i didn't i followed it up with shock horror the second of the two astaire hayworth pictures you were never lovelier hmm uh, this one is directed by William A. Seater, and it's a vastly superior effort to the previous film. So it's a remake of a classic Argentinian film from the previous year, mm-hmm. and uh, perhaps for that reason the farce at the centre of the film is rock solid, even allowing for some dramatic beats uh, in amidst the fun, which I thought were actually earned. Mm. And it's probably one of the stronger films uh, Astaire made in this mode. I think. I think it lives up to the best of the lives up to the best of the Rogers and Astaire pictures, and even exceeds many of them. So Hayworth is effortlessly charming in this film, and is much better served by the material this time round. The dance numbers are low key in conception, yet all are beautifully executed and memorable. 
And uh, in contrast to some of the other Astaire pictures, um, including You'll Never Get Rich, the direction is crisp and fleet in that pleasing classic Hollywood fashion. So William A. Seater, I looked into him, seems to be something of a journeyman director when you look at the sheer amount of films that he churned out. Um, but he clearly knows what he's doing. He's, he'd been directing since, like, 1915, so I guess it makes sense that uh, he would uh, learn the craft. Staging and blocking at top-notch, and he keeps the momentum going between the dance numbers, which is rarely a given in this type of picture, and the script working from, as I said, a, a presumably strong source in that Argentine film provides uh, the capable cast with sparkling lines. Highly recommended if you like this sort of thing. Which I did. Um, I can't say. I've only seen one uh, Rogers Astaire vehicle, so I can't say it's really to my taste, to be honest. Not you, the proverbial royal you. No, no, you're talking to me. And then, what do you think I followed that up with in my first trio of viewings? Where to go from these two Hayworth Astaire pictures? Give me a year. Give you a year? Yeah. Okay. 1995. So jumping way ahead in time. And uh, you watched... Um, man, I can't think of it, a single movie that came out in 1995. Wow. And I watched this partly on your recommendation. <laughs> oh, it's it's Fallen Angels. That's right, it's Fallen Angels. Mm. So what do I think? What do I think of Fallen Angels? What is Fallen Angels? So yes, Fallen Angels is by uh, Wong Kar Wai. <laughs> I've, t- I've talked about this movie twice on the show. That's so. true. You've all right. You've talked about Fallen Angels before. We can only assume that the listener has heard you talk about Fallen Angels before on the two occasions on which you spoke of it. Mm-hmm. So I will skip the plot synopsis. We'll get straight to the meat of this discussion. I'll tell you what I think. And I think, yeah, this was okay to me. I don't think this was Wong Kai Wai's best work. It kind no, of... doesn't surprise me. Kind of feels like ambient cinema for a certain strain of film fan. Like, say, me, for instance. Like, say, you, for instance. So we've got Assassins. We've got Stiletto Heels. We've got Jukeboxes, Bars. People mooning about a nocturnal setting. Fuzzy lights, bedsit apartments, and a hip soundtrack. And I think there are great moments in this film, actually. Yeah, like the, let's say, the entire film, you know? I enjoyed the thread of uh, oddball comedy Mm. that runs through it. And I think it does manage to transcend the feeling of being a a cinematography showreel, even if it threatens to be that at times. Um, Thought the, the... masturbation scene was ludicrous <laughs> and <laughs> unnecessary and hilarious i know like this is this is a film that's not heavily about narrative right no not especially it's more like a snapshot of people's lives in the context of like a greater portrait of hong kong that uh chunking express and fallen angels kind of combined to create yeah and in fact i think Wong kai wai has said as much yeah, they, they are definitely of a piece just in terms of their similar structures and shared cinematographers and stuff. And yeah, such. well, Chunking Express begat Fallen Angels, which was originally going to be yeah. the third story of that film. Yeah, so it's not it's not really about the narrative per se. No. But nonetheless, the, the story with the assassin where it's, the, it's this partnership between uh, a woman and a man, the, the woman sort of cases 
the joint and gets all the details about the target and then the man enacts the hit, right? That's the yeah, partnership. It's their relationship. But there's all this nonsense about her being like in love with him and there's just, I don't know, there just wasn't enough to sort of support why she would be in love with him. <laughs> he, seemed, he seemed pretty boring. He's, he's just an attractive guy. What, what else do you want, man? <laughs> so the story between him and uh, Blondie mm. was a little more interesting, I thought. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it doesn't really matter. Who cares about story? There's a lot of enjoyable stuff to be had here. I think if you're into Wong Kar Wai, it's, it's definitely worth watching. Yeah, it's, so, it's probably is uh, you know if, if you were if you were say a discerning individual, you might say it's his best film. But I, I feel like there's a better marriage between style and content with In the Mood for Love. You know what? I get, I I accept that In the Mood for Love is probably the more perfectly wrought film. Mm. But uh, I think the way that Fallen Angels is incredibly imperfect makes me like it even more. Mm. So. Um, and so you like it I think it's shit. That, yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Fair enough. It out, bro. I can't argue with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I really love uh, basically the entire film. <laughs> <laughs> but I love the ending uh, so much. And also, I just love uh, the Takeshi K- K- Kitashiro storyline a lot, too. And the other storyline as well. So. Um, I think that I think that for me uh, yeah I don't know there's just so much surface pleasure to have be added to this film that I just kind of don't care about that the narrative is a little like you know generic Mm. Um, I I think that Wong uh, extrapolates enough emotion in the form of his style that um, I don't need that greater substance of narrative so, but I mean, I, I you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to like uh, try to dissuade you of your own opinion. Like, it's totally acceptable, you know. If you, if you, I mean, you don't even need uh, to say it. I, under, I understand how this podcast works. <laughs> yeah. I don't think the intent of uh, either of us when we're talking about our feelings is to. No, I'm. T- I'm. I'm to de- uh, no, no. In general, I'm trying to destroy you and mm. replace your opinion with my opinion. Okay. But this time, I'll allow, I'll let it slide. <laughs> Thank you. I really like the the scenes with uh, Takeshi Kitashiro when he gets the uh, video camera. The stuff between him and his father was 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 quite well done. I liked that. Yeah, and I lo- I love the ending too when he goes to the the stadium, which is them going on the motorcycle together. It's mm. good stuff. Good stuff. And then it's just it might be my favorite final shot in any movie that I've seen. Mm. To be honest. Well, bully for you. <laughs> Um, but but uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's such a, a kind of mixed reaction, I guess. Well, I mean, it's it's still really enjoyable. So it's not like a bad experience of the movies. But no, no, you hated it and you hate me. But I definitely prefer In the Mood for Love. I haven't actually seen Chunking Express for years. I did cherish it uh, during the period in which I used to watch it. But I would like to revisit it at some point. All right. Do you want to cut to me doing my films now or do you want to do another one? I would love to. Okay. And then you do four, is that right? Yeah, and then I bring it home. Uh, let's see. All right, so I'm going to do mine quickly because, honestly, <laughs> none of the three films I watched I particularly have that much to say about. Mm. So uh, I'm, gonna, I am descri- I'm going to describe one at length because I think it's really a weird film. But um, I'm going to start with the two 
uh, ones that I watched that I could sort of dispose of pretty quickly. So I watched the uh, second uh, Female Prisoner Scorpion film, which is called Female Prisoner Scorpion Jailhouse 41. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I must say, if I uh, thought the other one was a pretty, you know, um, well-made and, you know, queasy and slightly feminist, um, you know, exploitation film, I think this film uh, is almost a masterpiece in the way it, um, you know, pushes... Uh, this sort of marriage between like art film and um, you know exploitation to this like I don't know it's it's just this like great sort of rendition of uh, sort of like the national trauma associated with um, putting people in prison pretty much and um, I think it's uh, just incredible. So it like uh, it's, it's like lives up to Suzuki or something like that. Yeah, no, it definitely feels sort of Suzuki yes, and also it's uh, got kind of a, a Nagasa Oshima flair too. Um, which is especially evident because I didn't realize this in the first one because uh, he gets a, a a wound pretty early in the film. But the man who plays like the lead antagonist of, of both this film and the previous one uh, is an actor named uh, Fumio Watanabe. I don't know if you remember him from our Suzuki marathon. He's a pretty much all of Suzuki. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not Suzuki. He's, he's in all of uh, Nagasa Oshima's films. Yeah, like yeah, his, yeah. He was like his leading man for a while. Yeah. Um, and this film also featured uh, Roko Tora. I don't know if you remember him. Not by name. Uh, yeah, he has the. He was also in a ton of uh, Oshima films, and he has these very distinctive eyes that look kind of sunken into his skull. Right. And he is also briefly in this movie, which definitely sort of uh, made me feel like kind of like I was watching an Oshima film. Yeah. Let's see. Let's see. So, if the last movie sort of is about uh, you know uh, titular character getting her revenge on the men who put her in jail, and kind of feels. Uh, of a piece with like sort of certain other rape revenge films. Uh, I guess this film kind of fits in that mode too, but it's much more about these group, this group of women breaking out of jail and basically just, it's, it, it kind of like formulates itself as almost a Western of them, like, you know, wandering around this like desolate portion of the Japanese like countryside. You're just trying to uh, kill the prison guards and, um, you know, make a, make a, make away with their lives uh, and what this film, I think, is it does really well is it never shies away from the crimes that they committed, but it sort of asks the question of whether or not, you know, the the crimes that these women committed can even consider to be their fault, considering that uh, all of them were done because, basically, because, you know, men have mistreated them in some way, mm-hmm. you know? And it's not, it doesn't even indict, like, the sort of explicit misogyny of, like, rape. I mean, it does do that, but it, it's not only that, it, like, indicts like the more benign forms of like you know uh husbands cheat other spouses and stuff like that too mm-hmm. uh, which i think makes this film you know much more complex than the original one uh in terms just in terms of like that thematic weight uh and also does something pretty incredible with the lead character uh and i have to say if if uh, michael cagey is like pretty good at the first one she's like incredible here uh it's a very sort of eastwood-esque performance and i'm not just saying that because you know, she wears like a poncho throughout the film, um, but it really kind of does have uh, resonances with like the uh, dollar trilogy and that uh, in this film, like basically she has she has like three lines of dialogue the entire film. And yet she still managed to be manages to be like completely commanding and like dominates every frame that she's in just because she so uh, has such a compelling, you know, presence on screen. Hmm. I think her, I think her performance in this is like it's it's probably it's like one of the best I've seen. You know, definitely in this type of film, and maybe just like period, um, and it it's not even it doesn't even like because uh, I mean there's there's this great moment at the end when she like finally like 
uh, breaks down almost. It just like starts laughing and it feels like so uh, cathartic and wonderful and sort of scary. And it, I, I don't know. I think I just think she's terrific at this. Um, and the film, you know, uh, it really asks these sort of like difficult questions about like um, uh, whether, you know, you can change society without uh, some form of community first. And uh, if uh, you if you don't have that community or if you betray it, then your ability to to change things is like limited to, you know, just sort of petty revenge uh, and has this like pretty incredible uh, final series of shots. Uh, and I really I thought it was really fantastic. I'm really excited to watch the uh the other two films of the series. So that's a uh, female prisoner Scorpion jailhouse 41. Uh, and I guess I should like say a little bit of a trigger warning. There are, there are two like pretty uh, horrible rape scenes in this. Uh, and they're not like eroticized at all. And they're like both really queasy and horrible. Uh, and this is, you know, one of the few Japanese films that I've seen that also like sort of indicts uh, Japanese war crimes in, in China, which mm. I was not expecting either. You know, it doesn't it doesn't limit it to a specific a specific character. Like it, it makes it seem sort of, uh, you know, it's a kind of the banality of evil, I guess. Uh, but it makes it seem like a disease that's that's infected, like just everyday people in Japan. So and it sort of asks, uh, you know, the, the classic uh, question, if there is a uh, innocent bourgeoisie. So I uh, I was a really big fan of this movie. And I was, I was you know, I, I enjoyed the first one, but I think this one is like basically perfect. I don't think I would change anything about it. I think it's. It's one of the best like uh, exploitation films of this type that I've seen. So, I would I would recommend if you can find it. I would I would recommend watching it. Mm, okay. And that's that's uh, female prisoner scorpion jailhouse forty one. Uh, and I decided to follow it up with uh, follow that up uh, with a film that I had watched maybe thirty minutes of in my youth and uh, never finished all the way. And I recently picked up the Shout Factory release because I've always been sort of interested in this film, uh, which is uh, Water Hill Streets of Fire. <laughs> Uh, which is this like kind of bizarre? Uh, it says it's a rock and roll fable at the beginning, um, and uh, you know I think this film is pretty enjoyable. It does feel kind of I mean on one hand it feels a little like masculinist and and testosterone heavy. Like uh, you know the main female character is um basically a object of I don't know kidnapping and then unkidnapping. So uh, it feels a little conservative in that respect, but. I do like how it makes music and rock and roll sort of it, it, it you know, the world that it presents is is dystopian in some respects, but also utopian in that it shows like uh, music as this sort of like um, uh, as having this ability to like uh, create this like multiracial like uh, utopia almost. Mm. And I was kind of a fan of that. Uh, and I think the songs of this movie, which were written or at least two of them, the, the main like ballads that uh, open and close the film. Uh, were written by what's his name? The guy who wrote the uh, two Bonnie Tyler songs, Jim Steadman, I think. The guy who did the Meatloaf. Yeah, he wrote he wrote Meatloaf's first two albums, and also wrote the uh, Holding Out for a Hero and uh, Total Eclipse of the Heart. Right. Um, so you know, there's kind of like cheesy ballads, but they really work in the context of this like absurd universe that Hill creates. Mm. Um, and I just think this film is really, uh, it's you know, it's it's good fun uh, if you can get past sort of the latent uh, misogyny which is like sort of blunted in part by the inclusion of this like sort of um butch ish um compatriot that the main character has uh who uh you know tags along with him and is like just as capable but does feel a little bit like oh we're making this you know um female character she's as tough as any man you know mm -hmm. kind of suffers from that false feeling and in fact the character was originally written as a man <laughs> uh and the actress who auditioned for it um 
was like, oh, I could play this role, and then they were like, okay. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that it's it still feels. I mean, I, I enjoy her character, even if it's it feels a little like um, it just feels a little like generic, I guess. Um, and I think I think that uh, some people have complained about uh, Michael Perry in this because he plays the lead character um, because he seems like wooden to some people. Um, and I think this movie actually would be pretty unwatchable without him because he kind of seems like a little bit idiotic and <laughs> childish. It's almost like a little like a, a I don't know like mentally disabled or something. Uh, and I think that uh, that actually makes him seem more appealing in my eyes than if he were just like this like you know tough guy. Um, and this it, it has this very like um, comic book style. And, like Hill said that you know he wanted to make a comic book movie, but he didn't actually like any comic book heroes so he wanted to make his like own no but it definitely feels very comic booky in its conception in the way that like it it gives all its characters like iconic looks and stuff uh and it has two pretty amazing uh, performance uh scenes with uh with uh, diane lane uh, diane lane uh who uh plays the singer of this band and those are really great uh and uh you know it's 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 good fun at the movies let's say Oh, it also has got a very fun Willem Dafoe performance where he plays this like biker creep who has this like ridiculous haircut. Mm. Uh, that's kind of like uh, Norman Osborn in the uh, Spider-Man comics. Do you know that that look that I'm talking about? Yeah. So uh, it's it's very very funny, um, and he he hasn't given given like a ton of screen time. Like I don't think his uh, work here is, is is as compelling as like his villain in To Live and Die in L.A. But I think uh, he's, you know, he's always he's always uh, an enjoyable presence that that will. So. Cool. I watched the 1937 film. Uh, it happened in Hollywood. Now, Hugh, I, I hear you wondering what is it happened in Hollywood and why on earth did you watch it? Well, I can I'll go with that first question. I'll answer that first question a little bit. Uh, and start with the second one, which is that I have recently acquired not that recently, I guess about. A month or two ago, acquired a box set from the British um, home media company called uh, Limewood Media or Powerhouse Films uh, called Samuel Fuller at Columbia, which is just sort of a collection of <coughs> Sam Fuller's uh, early work. Because I've always been interested in Sam Fuller as a director, but uh, never, you know, took the plunge. And sometimes I find it easier to force myself to watch, to get acquainted with someone's work if I own a physical copy of their their stuff, you know? Mm. Uh, and I bought this box set because it seemed appealing. I was I was mad with uh, with uh, you know government money at the time, <laughs> uh, and uh, so this box set contains uh, seven films, I think, um, five of which were either written, or co-written, or based off the works of Sam Fuller, and the other two of which he directed and wrote. Uh, and this is the first film included in that. And it was in fact his very first. Uh, film credit where he co-wrote the script uh, as far as I could tell you know knowing not having not personally familiar and not having been personally familiarized with Sam Flores style you know I, I know a couple of his trademarks just from reading criticism and that sort of stuff you sort of uh, get the uh, atmosphere of these things via osmosis I think if you're in the film world long enough you know hmm. um, and as far as I could tell this film contains not one trace of what people would identify as Sam Fuller's style or his personality. He's one of four credited screenwriters. Yes. Uh, so probably a situation that does not allow very easily the imposition of, you know, a personal style. Um, and what is this film, I hear you ask you? Could you do that, please? 
so you can feel better about yourself. What what is this film? Well, Hugh, it is a bizarre, bizarre film. Uh, that's basically, you know, it's it's kind of like uh, the movie uh, Singing in the Rain, but what if it were about a uh, Western star uh, transitioning from the silent era to the sound era, uh, a Western star trying to transition uh, with his, uh, you know, love lovely lady companion alongside. And can do you think he can make the jump, Hugh? Well, the answer is that he can, but uh, only after about sixty minutes of some weird stuff i have to say uh so uh as far as i can tell you the main character of this movie is basically a pedophile <laughs> and i'm gonna lay my evidence out thusly okay so the opening scene of this film takes place in a children's hospital okay uh-huh. that the uh main character whose name is uh, is played by richard dix who i learned is from saint paul uh, which is the sister city to minneapolis in minnesota it's the second of the twins uh-huh. so uh, anyway, so his name is um, something Bart. I can't remember. It. Jim Bart. That's his name. Okay, so he's, he's this Western star. Tim Bart. Yep. Uh, he's he's this Western star, and the film starts with him out at the, the children's hospital. And he's handing out these uh, little metal badges to all the sick kids, and he's like, "Oh, you know, now you're part of the Tim Bart fan club, right? Because obviously they love his his you know his odors his." His uh, silent westerns. They they love him at the at the children's hospital, right? Mm-hmm. Then uh, he says something that made my skin uh, break out in goose pimples. Which he invited all these kids back to his ranch in Hollywood. <laughs> uh, so that's 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 a little bit of evidence. Then a second a second little piece is that there's a great scene where these kids are fighting over something that you don't see. And uh, you know this is this is totally ancillary to the plot. So uh, the uh, Mr. Tim Bart walks past these kids that are fighting, and he uh, breaks up the fight. It goes uh, it it makes sure to buy all of the little kids soda pop at the local stand. So there we go. <laughs> so he's this Western star, yeah. And then he fails his sound test. And I think if I had to, um, have you seen uh, Hail Caesar? Yeah. You know the famous Elo. Uh, elocution scene with uh, Alden Ehrenreich where would the West say simple yeah yes I think you know I think the Coens may have lifted or had the uh, premise of that that scene from this film wow because uh, this movie is about you know a uh, star of westerners who uh, you know he's he's put into these he's locked in a monkey suit and told to you know act romantic alongside his, his leading lady and you know his 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 darn tootin' old country accent won't won't let him get the lines out as they were written, you know. So uh, I wonder if the, the them old Coens were uh, watching this movie uh, when they when they made that. I wouldn't be surprised. So uh, so he fails at, at that, and then he uh, gets on this gangster picture that he doesn't want to do um, because he has to shoot a cop. It by by gummit, his his conscience won't allow him to do that, you know. <laughs> but the reason, well, I'm going to tell you the the twist that is this movie. Uh, so so just just keep that in, keep that in mind. He didn't want to shoot a cop, okay. and it's gonna set inside. But um so, but the the reason that he gives is that he doesn't want to ruin his image with the kids, <laughs> right? And so uh so he he you know, he bums around his house, gets repossessed, his 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 huge estate that he that he wanted to set aside prairie space to, so that he could find all the city kids over to his estate and, and give them a camp. <clears throat> uh, so his house gets repossessed. <clears throat> But but wouldn't you know it? The sickest of the sick children, uh, in the opening scene, the one who's about to go into surgery 
when Bart uh, gave him one of his badges and told him he could come visit him. Uh, but, but why don't you know it? He, he, he survives the surgery and, and makes his way down Hollywood way to come visit Mr. Bart. <laughs> There's this crazy scene where uh, Bart's, you know, arguing with the kid because uh, the kid wants him to, you know, stay in Hollywood and make movies and such. And uh, the kid passes out because of mental exhaustion. And the next scene, Bart has undressed the kid except for his pants. <laughs> so uh, I'm just saying that... Uh, if uh, Tim Bart were to um, uh, be, uh, you know, today, I think I think some sort of Michael Jackson esque scandal might emerge. Okay, mm. uh, but anyway, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna keep going because uh, the 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 reason that this film is most famous is yet to to come up. Um, so the kid is is discouraged, but um, you know, Bart by gummit, he can't he can't let this kid uh, lose lose faith in his Hollywood dreams. Am I right, Hugh? You're right. Uh, so what what does he do but throw a huge Hollywood party in his former home? And how does he do it, Hugh? Sending out inv- invitations, getting the catering and well, all that. Yeah, 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 yeah. He does all that, and do you know he gets to be at this party? A bunch of impersonators of the real stars. <laughs> so this movie basically ends with this 10-minute party scene where all these uh, celebrity impersonators of the time uh, you know, uh, come to this party and, and trick this kid into see, thinking he's he's hanging out with all the stars of Hollywood. <laughs> and uh, I watched a featurette about this this sequence, and uh, the best part is is that most of the the, the impersonators were actually stand-ins for the real actors, mm. and some of them were their siblings, <laughs> <laughs> which is really funny. Um, there's like Charlie Chaplin. There's uh. Uh, you know, uh, uh, W.C. Fields, uh, uh, Frank Franco Tone, uh, Joe Crawford. Well, mm. it's it's a it's a parade of stars. Um, and then you know, uh, basically the kid. <laughs> this 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 scene I thought was really great too, where uh, like I said, Bart has this like female love interest that you know, um, has been in all his movies and made the tra- transition to sound a little smoother than he did, and she is at this party too. And they, uh, you know, uh, Bart, uh, you know, wants the kid to, to have a good time. So he leaves him alone on the the horse, his, his, his loyal horse that is accompanying him in all of all the pictures that he made, right? Mm. And uh, so he goes off with this woman and has a little bit of a romantic, you know, thing, whatever. It's, it's obviously a cover so he can keep on amusing the children. Uh, but the, the minute his back is turned, the, the horse throws the boy out to the ground. <laughs> it hurts him. <laughs> just great uh, there's a great scene where a doctor tells uh <laughs> tells um, uh, 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 Bart that he can't, the, the boy is fine but he can't be moved or else he'll die so Bart's, Bart's basically forced to, to look after this kid for another week you know mm-hmm. um, but but he's still gonna lose his house uh, and and what's he gonna do oh man you know he, he starts having these weird hallucinations about uh, the the movie that he was in where he was robbing a bank uh, and this is this is how this movie ends you is that he goes to a bank and as far as you can tell because he's, he's doing the same like actions and lines that he was doing in the and when he was acting in the movie yeah like, is this dude gonna rob a bank okay but he before he gets the chance what, what are you doing the bank is actually getting robbed <laughs> and lucky luckily for for all the, the you know the loyal citizens of America uh, our our friend Mr. Mr. Bartha Western Star carries a loaded six shooter around with him at all times, and basically he guns down two 
bank robbers and the press from this convinces the studio head to put it back in movies and that's how the movie ends so great stuff oh no no actually i i lied the best part uh, of the eddie which is that the film cuts from him getting his his you know they're gonna make westerns again um it cuts straight from that to all these children at his ranch and it, it says instead of saying you know the bard estate it says bard summer camp for boys so oh. <laughs> great great stuff uh and uh i think i just conveyed how bizarre and strange this movie is it's a little boring too uh just because you know i don't know there's not, not, not a lot of compelling things in the text of the film itself uh but uh you know i think i i think i enjoyed it on the balance it just as this like weird artifact uh and the thing that weirded me out the most is that i wasn't ever aware that that like a part of the the through line is that like you know now that the sound is sound has come they're not going to make westerns anymore you know hmm. and I, I was never aware that that was a thing that happened in Hollywood. You know, I always thought, I mean, westerns were like their bread and butter up until like the '60s, basically. You know, so yeah, I can't quite see the logic, but it's not to say there wasn't some sort of weird panic that occurred at the time. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, that's it happened in Hollywood. Would I recommend it? Um, I don't know. It's only sixty-seven minutes, so <laughs> not a t- too taxing on the old eyeballs, uh, and. Yo, and I, you know what else I forgot to mention is that the lead actor, Richard Dix, looks uh, very much like, um, what's his name? The guy for The Mummy. Um, Brendan Fraser. Brendan Fraser. Yeah, he looks like Brendan Fraser. So if you ever wanted to see Brendan Fraser play a washed-up Western star who may or may not be a pedophile, then watch It Happened in Hollywood. Hmm. So two things. Uh, so first of all, it appears that Sam Fuller's first credit is for a film that predates that one called Hats Off. Mm. Well, too bad for me then. I wasted my time enough for nothing. Did they not include that in your box set? Uh, it may have been from a different studio because this box set is only the films he made at Columbia. So. Ah, okay. Fair enough. Um, well, the, uh, that film is in the public domain, so you can just watch it mm. right now anyway. Um, the other thing That's is... True. I'm not going to, but... <laughs> The director of It Happened in Hollywood, Harry Lockman, mm. um, made an earlier film that I've just found out about that sounds interesting, uh, an adaptation of Dante's Inferno mm-hmm. uh, from 1935. And apparently mm-hmm. it has a very interesting 10-minute sequence um, which depicts hell in which Harry Lockman utilised his training as a post-impressionist painter. Now, I want to add two factoids to that, right? Mm. Which is that this film stars Spencer Tracy, and you're like, Spencer Tracy playing for, or playing uh, Dante? Uh, Dante. That's, a, <laughs> that's a little weird. But uh, it, it's a very loosely based, it says so. Yeah, I'm just looking at the cast now, and it says, like, Spencer Tracy is Jim Carter. <laughs> <laughs> and and William Robertson is building Inspector Harris. I, and it doesn't sound particularly Dante-esque from that, but... no. That film was 88 minutes, though. But basically, it's just a film that includes a random sequence where he has, like, a, a vision of the Inferno. And uh, they decided that would be the name of the film, too. Hmm. So there you go. At least the 10 minutes of that might be worth tracking down. Sounds interesting. Yeah, maybe. He also directed Charlie Chan at the circus. He directed a lot of Charlie Boy. Chan stuff, by the looks of it. Or at least a few of them. Charlie Chan in Rio. Uh, that one. That one sounds great. Two two races racism at once. 
All right, so that's what you watched. Yep, that's all I got. It's time for me to bring it home. Well, the last Charlie Chan film was made in 1981. Wow. <laughs> Who was in it? I always thought... Who was well, there, Charlie there's Chan? that great one with uh, Peter Sellers, but Peter Ustinov played up in this, this one. God. Charlie Chan and the Curse of the Dragon Queen. So I watched If You Could Only Cook from 1935, which is another film directed by William A. Saita, whose work impressed mm. me in You Are Never Lovelier. And I was curious to see what his other films would be like. So this is a classic screwball farce where, surprise, surprise, an idle rich person role plays as a poor one. Hmm. What? Okay. So the best thing about this film is that it's both charming and brief at only like 72 minutes in total. It was panned at the time by Graham Greene, who singled out the lead performance by Herbert Marshall as, and I quote, conceited and humorless. Mm. And I will have to respectfully disagree with Mr. Greene. Wow. I think there's a wryness to his performance that has aged remarkably well. He's got one of those classic Hollywood transatlantic voices with crisp, perfect diction, a sort of accent you could take a bath in. Um, I mean, he, he's actually British, so it's more authentic than that invented transatlantic accent, but it's definitely along those lines. That's quite pleasing just to hear him speak anything. And he's ably matched in this film by Gene Arthur as a depression casualty who becomes his co-conspirator. And I think their performance styles complement one another well. Her spirit, spiritedness complements his theatrical reserve. The resolution to the farce is silly and extremely abrupt, but it hardly matters. This is a pretty fun film, and it's short. The sort of film that would be perfect for a rainy Sunday afternoon. It's, it's not quite up to the standards set by Lubitsch in the similar but sharper Trouble in Paradise, which I've talked about on this podcast before, and which also starred Herbert Marshall. But given that that film is... Near perfect, if not perfect. That's not really saying that much. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this is a quiet recommendation from me. And I followed uh, that film up with another film starring Gene Arthur. Only Angels Have Wings, the Howard Hawks film. Ah. And, uh, you know, it's pretty solid. It's pretty enjoyable. It's well staged, as you'd expect. I found it a little bit unbalanced. So it sort of kicks off as a screwball comedy involving Gene Arthur and then all but drops that thread for like a large stretch of the film where it becomes this um, aeronautical drama of some description mm-hmm. and then sort of unconvincingly reintroduces that thread of uh, romance. Mm. I will say that I mean, this is my interpretation, this may not actually be the case, but it it seems like it's kind of designed to make you sympathise with how great Cary Grant's character is after all. Mm. At the beginning, he seems seems a bit uh, callous and cavalier, and then over the course of the film, his, his, his true character is revealed. But I found him quite unlikable so that that whole <laughs> that whole element of the film didn't really work for me um and, and neither did the love story between gene arthur and Cary grant Rhea hayworth is also in this i think it was her first major role um and she plays like an ex-girlfriend of Cary grant's character 
Um, some of the aerial scenes are really well done, the ones that are actually legitimate aerial scenes and not rear screen production or model work, which does also feature in this. Mm. Um, so there's some great sequences uh, where we actually just see a held shot of a, a plane landing in this small remote uh, village on a mountain. Um, that's all well done, but yeah, I think your mileage may vary with this depending on how invested you are with uh, the Cary Grant character. The Colder Powered Hawks. Um, apparently, Gene Arthur had problems working with Howard Hawks on this film and wasn't quite sure exactly what he wanted from her, or at least couldn't really grasp his conception of her character. And you kind of feel that a little bit as well, but it feels more like a problem with the actual screenplay, I think. Um, but not bad. It's it's Howard Hawks, so it's... So it's, it's shit. It's shit, yeah. It's fucking horrible. I just want you to say it. It's Howard Hawks, so it's decent enough, but not my favourite work of his. Then I watched, can you guess, where would I go from Only Angels Have Wings? It seems like I'm following a progression from film to film. There's like a, a logical thread. Give me, give me a year. 1990. Once again, we're jumping well into the future. I can't think of any films that came out in 1990. Quiz show. Uh, I'll give you another hint. It was written... Hardware? Nope. It was written and directed by someone who has a close connection to the focus of our sister podcast, for Christ's sake. <laughs> um, I mean, maybe not a close connection, but a connection. Uh, is it a Spielberg film? It is not. But it is an Amblem Entertainment production. Is it Gremlins 2? It is not. It is John Patrick Shanley's Joe vs. the Volcano. Why did you watch that? It sounded like a, a bizarre miscalculation from the era of big budget comedies. And that's always fun. Mm-hmm. I guess. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, kind, it's kind of what I expected. It does feel like a miscalculation, and maybe that's the most enjoyable part of the film. The, the whimsical production design, which extends to the, the so-called mundane scenes of um, the Tom Hanks character's job, gets old almost instantly. And there is nothing about the story or the dialogue that I would consider even remotely amusing. But, like I said, it is fun to revisit the era where this type of big-budget comedy was produced. Uh-huh. Um, so it, it kind of has that, that curiosity factor going for it. Um, so John Patrick Shanley, who wrote and directed this, uh, also wrote the screenplay to Moonstruck. I think that, that film possessed a similar atmosphere of bizarre miscalculations, at least at times. It's pretty good, though. Even though it's it's quite an enjoyable film, anyway. Honestly, I kind of just wish this was Cabin Boy. <laughs> but don't you wish every movie was Cabin Boy? Yeah, that's true. So I alluded to a connection between uh, the author of this film and uh, our favorite author, Michael Crichton. Mm, yeah, what's the uh, connect? And that connection is that Shanley wrote the screenplay to the film adaptation of Congo. <laughs> So we've got that to look That's forward to. That seems, that seems higher brow, uh, more higher brow than Congo um, would suggest that it's required. Yeah, because I think he, I mean, he's originally a playwright. You ready for my last film? A film I watched just this morning. Go for it. 
this is another Gene Arthur film that I've decided to watch. Mr. Deeds goes to town. Oh, boy. The inferior Mr. Deeds film. Uh, I can't say I'm familiar with any of them. Really? You don't know the Adam Sandler one? <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I haven't seen it, but I'm, I'm aware of it. Well, there you go. Then you know it. I mean, I know the originals, too. I know what they are, but I haven't seen any of them. Quick, <laughs> Mr. Deeds. <laughs> uh, yes, I watched, I watched Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, directed by Frank Capra, starring Gary Cooper and Gene Arthur. Do you know the basic story? No. So Gary Cooper plays Longfellow Deeds, a tuba-playing small-time poet who inhabits a fictional small town named Mandrake Falls. You know, he's, he's, he's going about living his quiet life in this small town, when suddenly he's informed that he has inherited $20 million from his late uncle. Now his uncle's scheming legal team whisks him away to New York, the big city, the big smoke, the big apple, this corn-fed boy, and... Uh, essentially attempts to manipulate him out of his millions. Sounds great. Initially by obtaining a power of attorney over him so they can control his financial affairs. But when that doesn't work, because Deeds proves to be more shrewd than they had expected, uh, they attempt to certify him insane based on his eccentric deeds, as it were. In amidst all this, we have uh, Jean Arthur's character, so she plays a journalist called Louise, and uh, she is tasked with getting the lowdown on this, on this Longfellow fellow. So she pretends to be a damsel in distress. Uh, he takes kindly to her, and uh, they proceed to begin an acquaintance. Uh-huh. She writes nasty stories about him, but lo and behold, she falls for him. And it culminates in, uh, you know. Just like, uh, fucking, uh, the, the movie with Sam Robbins that the Coen Brothers did. Uh, Horns Blallow Proxo. Yes, that's it. Horns Blallow Proxo. Hudson Like Proxy. Hudson Like Proxy. So, this. This is, uh, quintessential Capra, I guess. Which is to say it sucks. Well, it plays rather like propaganda for small-town America. That's what Capra was known for doing. Indeed. So we have this big-hearted rube exposed to the cruel, corrupt ways of the city. And it culminates in a rousing courtroom battle. But, but I will say that despite, despite me not sharing any of those values, I will say... I will say that he still crafts an enjoyable story. Like, you still you still have to tip your hat to him at the end of it. So you're saying that the propaganda is effective. Effective propaganda. I definitely prefer Capra of, like, It Happened One Night as opposed to this film, but nonetheless, which is written by the same screenwriter as well. This is definitely well-crafted storytelling. You know, I can't think of a filmmaker whose work I'd, I'd rather, or I'd least like to watch than Frank Capra, to be honest. I've always, I've always been somewhat reluctant to delve very deeply into his filmography, but I will say that It Happened One Night is excellent, which kind of laid the template for the screwball comedy. Mm. And it's not, a, it's not a particularly sentimental film. 
Mm. Well, uh, that's that's about it, I think. That's it. Oh, friend. Oh.